So we are continuing, we're in week three of Parenting on Purpose. Uh, we believe that God has created the family the way he did on purpose for a very good reason. Uh, sometimes, as we've talked about each week, we can just kind of get in that parenting mode of just, just get to the end of the day, get to the end of the school year, or as we look at our coaching phase today, just get them out of the house safely. If we can just transition them to adulthood, as long as they just make it to 18, whoo, parenting job over. We all know that this isn't God's purpose for parenting, but it can be tempting to give into it sometimes. And so what I want to do is just kind of call us to the specific purposes uh, that God has called us to be parents at. Uh, and so I'm using um, Andy Stanley, a pastor down in the Atlanta area. Uh, he I don't know if he created or stole, but he showed it to me, these kind of four stages of parenting that we're using to walk through. Uh, week one, we looked at the discipline stage, uh, zero to five. And, and these numbers that you see on there are not hard and fast numbers. It's more kind of just seasons um, when our kids come in. And so those early years, uh, the child's greatest need in those times is boundaries and consequences. They need to understand where the lines are and what happens if we cross the lines. They need to understand the good consequences that come when we stay within the lines. And so our job uh, as parents is to walk with them and help them discover boundaries and consequences. And our greatest responsibility, the, the hardest thing that we have to do during this time is consistency. To actually be consistent, do what we say, to make sure that those consequences are actually reinforced and they actually happen. And when they're zero to five, that is hard, hard work. Next comes the training stage, 5 to 12. Think those elementary school years, somewhere in that range. Uh, the child right now is trying to gain understanding. This is when they're really starting to ask some of the deeper questions, like, okay, this is the line, but why is that the line? But who said that that's the line? But why does this happen if I cross that line? And they start asking all kinds of deeper questions. They are on a search for understanding at this young age. In the best way they know how, they're trying to understand how and why the world works. How, like what do we believe and why do we believe it? And so we as parents, our greatest responsibility is shaping their worldview. Here is why we believe. Before it was just do and don't and kind of the, as best as we could. Now we're going, okay, here's why we don't. Here's why we should. And we're starting to help shape their worldview. Here is what we believe and why we believe it. Do you guys remember this? Making sense? Oh, it's going to be a rough one. All right. Today we step into the, the coaching stage of parenting. 12 through 18. Think that middle school, high school, in that range there. The, the teenage Years, But before I get too deep into that, I want to stop as we tried to do every week and just recognize that not everyone in here is a parent or will be a parent or some of you, uh, man, your kids are so young that you're going, I can't even imagine high school years or some of you, man, that was so long ago and you're so happy to have made it. You don't even want to go back and think about those times. Uh, but I, I want to encourage you not to check out. Because regardless of where you are, whether you are smack dab in the middle of this or right on the precipice looking into it, or, or you haven't thought about it in a while, you have the opportunity to come alongside others who are in this stage. You have the opportunity to be an incredible resource and friend, uh, a mentor to someone and begin to walk with them as they have children in this stage or to work with children, um, teenagers. So, so don't check out on any of this just because maybe this isn't your stage of parenting. 
It could be one day, or man, you could be a resource to someone else when it is for them. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's get into this coaching stage. Like I said, it's middle school into high school uh, type age range. Our teenagers at this point have many, many, many more voices speaking into their development. In the earlier stages, like especially the earliest one, mom and dad were kind of the main voice. And then as they start to get into elementary school, they're getting exposed to some other things, but really they're coming home every day. You're spending so much time with them. You are the, the main voice of influence in their lives. But now as they start to get into middle school and then deeper into high school, more and more voices are speaking into their development. Their school with their, their teachers and certain curriculums and, and the way that they're seeing things done at school. Their peers coming alongside and, and speaking into things, whether they should or shouldn't. But they're coming along and they're starting to, to have influence in our teenagers' lives. Social media is becoming a, a growing influence in our teenagers' lives. And, and we can have a debate on good, bad, whatever. But the truth is, it's there. And, and it's having influence. World events start to influence more and more as they grow through this stage of parenting. In elementary school, they were pretty just focused on what's happening in my life, in my home, in my neighborhood. As they start to grow, they start to catch more of what's happening in the country uh, as a whole or around the world, and that starts to influence and to shape them. So you are not, no longer the most influential voice in their life. They, they now have the opportunity to choose who to give influence to. Now, hear me real quick. I'm, I'm not trying to say in any way that all your influence is gone because that is not the truth. Some people, I've heard it said that like, man, once they get to middle school, just keep them safe. That's about all you can do. Like your parenting is almost over at that point. It's just kind of a, a giving up. You still have influence. It's diminishing a little uh, it, it, they, they aren't so naturally dependent on you and your thoughts, but you still have influence in their lives. Don't, don't give it up in this stage because it's more difficult, because you have, to, you have to work to be heard a little more during this stage. Our teenagers are spending increasing amounts of time away from us. They're starting to spend more time with friends. Maybe they're in more sports. Maybe they're starting to drive and are, are doing more on their own as they progress through. I'm just trying to paint the picture now for, so that you can have in your mind, if you haven't been in this stage for a while, this is kind of where a teenager is. And a teen's greatest need during this stage is growing independence. There's even less correction and discipline in this stage than there was in previous ones. Not no correction and discipline, but but it's less. You are less hands-on in their life at this point, especially as they progress through the stage. I was talking with some of our people that are gonna be on the panel here later today, and we were saying this, this stage is so difficult because it's actually one year less than the training stage we looked at last year, but like the changes that happen during this stage, there is such an arc of change, and so it's so hard because middle school is so different from high school, and freshman is so different from senior. I mean, you're going from middle school to college, from puberty to college. This is a, a huge range, and so a lot of this is as they grow through this stage, they have a need for growing independence. The freedoms that your senior in high school has should look very different from the freedoms that your sixth grader have. Does that make sense? This stage is more about connection and depth of relationship than it is correction and discipline. 
In, in earlier stages, those are more about building influence with your kid, helping them to understand here's the boundaries and here's why we set those boundaries. And there, there's a lot of you can trust me. These are here to keep you safe. These are here because I love you. The reason that we have to do this discipline is because I want better things for you. And you're building this influence or uh, in, in the business world, sometimes they call this relational capital. We have this almost relational currency that I'm building up because once we get to this coaching stage, I need to start spending that. There's a lot more of, hey, remember, I'm here for you. I need you to trust me. I can't necessarily grab you by the shoulders and make you do. Now I'm standing over here going, would you please trust me and come with me? This is hard because we have to coach from the sidelines. The reason they call this the coaching phase is because it's a, it's a pretty good picture for what it looks like. The coach equips the players. A, a lot of this happened in previous stages. You, you were helping them understand why we believe what we believe in, and how we do things and why we do those things. Now it's time for them to play the game, and you're on the sideline. We have fewer opportunities to speak into their lives at this stage, so we have to make those opportunities count. There's so many other voices, there's so much other influence, we have to really make sure that when we come alongside to coach, we're being really intentional because there's fewer opportunities there. We, we can call the plays from the sidelines. We can give direction. Hey, it's defense time, everybody get down here. But at no point in time do we get to step on the court and play the game for them. It truly is a more hands-off stage of parenting, and that's a really difficult thing. I think we'll hear about that in a little bit. At no point in time do we step on the court and play the game for them. And listen, we don't want to. We're not trying to raise people that are completely dependent on us into their 30s, right? Maybe some of you are, and if so, we can have that conversation. But... The goal is to have healthy, well-adjusted, independent adults at the end of this stage. But that means earlier on in the stage, we have to start letting go more and more, and that's really, really difficult. A parent's greatest responsibility during this stage is to give freedom in relationship to responsibility. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. There, there's this relationship between responsibility and freedom just in life in general, but especially in this stage, the more responsible you are, the more freedoms you gain. The less responsible you are, the less freedoms you have. Think this works outside of life with mom and dad. Once they become adults, what happens when they break the law? Your freedoms are restricted. Maybe they have to pay a fine and their financial freedoms are restricted. Maybe there's a more serious offense and actual freedoms are restricted. It's the way that the world works. And one of the best things that we can do for our kids is to help them understand that during this parenting stage. The more responsible you are, the more freedoms you have. When I'm taking away freedoms, it's not just because I'm mad and I'm taking it. It's because I want you to understand you were irresponsible and there's a loss of freedoms that comes with that. Is this making sense, church? Okay. The balance that we have to find is allowing them to make their own mistakes and learn their own lessons. This doesn't mean unless they do it perfectly, they get no freedom. That's foolishness. No one is going to do it perfectly. We have to allow them space to make their own mistakes, which is really, really hard. Because even at this age, they're still our babies, right? We don't love them less because they're getting more independent. We want good things for them. We don't want them to make the mistakes that we had, but at the same time, we learned through making mistakes 
and we have to allow them some space to do the same thing within reason. There's, there's a big difference between just throwing them out to the wolves and, and making these, these lifelong decisions on their own and micromanaging them. And we have to kind of find this balance. We want them to forge their own convictions and beliefs, but this happens through trial and error. The role of coach is one of the most difficult roles in parenting. Because we, we have to find this line to walk between trusting and foolish. But between guiding and micromanaging. Between allowing them to learn lessons and allowing them to self-inflict lifelong consequences on themselves. There is no one-size-fits-all, everyone just walk this same line. This is really difficult as a parent, as a coach in this stage, to go, okay, am I being foolish or am I not being trusting enough? Like, that's really difficult. We have to walk the line between conviction and preference. And what I mean by that is this. Okay, here's a line that I want to draw as a parent. Does this come from, like, a, a belief conviction? This is against what the scripture says. This is, Or is this just not how I would do it? Is that just not how I would dress? Is it a sin issue, a right and wrong conviction issue? Or is it simply a preference issue? Because if it's a conviction, then stand your ground, coach. There does come a time in the game sometimes when the coach has to pull a player from the court. You know what? The way that things are heading, this isn't going anywhere good. Sit down. Like, you know what? Like, you are a danger to yourself and your team at this point. I got to pull you. Like, there, there is room for that. This is a conviction. This is a right and wrong. I'm going to stand my ground on this one. But if it's a preference issue, it's just not the way I like things done. It's just not the way that I would approach it. Let it go, coach. Preference issues are not worth fighting at this point. We only have so much influence and, and so much opportunity to coach we have to spend that influence where it's really going to matter the most. Does that make sense? Okay. So I'm going to stop talking now because I'm in the middle of this stage and I have a ton to learn. And so we're calling up people who are experts in this, right? Yes. They're all shaking their heads no. Uh, but we're calling up people who have been through this before. And I, I want to point this out every single time. They do not claim that they did it perfectly and that, you know, they're just simply going to share with us their experience, some, some of what worked and what didn't work. And you're going to hear different parenting styles, different coaching styles. There isn't this one that we're shooting for. What we pray is that, Lord, like, would you, if there's something in there that they have that, that they have that would work for me and that they have that would work for me, would you just give me ears to hear? Does that make sense? All right, so I'm going to go ahead and invite our parenting panel up, and I'm going to grab you microphones. And as they make their way up, I'm going to give the same warning that I give each week with this, is there's always going to be opportunity for the enemy to bring accusation and condemnation. Um, because maybe you've been through this stage and you didn't do it perfectly. And the enemy is going to want to come and something that they say sparks it and he's going to go, see, you blew it. We serve a redemptive God, amen? A God who is able to work even despite our mistakes and so even if you're hearing things and you're going, I didn't know any of that. I didn't do any of that. God is still enough for your children. 
I don't care how old they are, how far away they moved, he is still able to work and to redeem. So let this be an encouragement, not an accusation this morning. Amen? Okay. All right. So, parenting panel, professionals. What sticks out to you guys uh, during those middle school, high school years of parenting as like really difficult? What were just some of those, those hurdles you had to make it through during that stage of parenting? I'll start. My hair used to be brown before my kids were teens. Um, I think one of the things I want to do first, and maybe we could all do this, is let you know kind of where our kids are. So we have four. Uh, one is 20, one is 21. One is 24, married, one is 26. I went back and I looked and I went, oh my goodness, we had teenagers for 13 years in a row and there was a two plus year period where all four of them were in this stage, which is, this is what you, this is what you get. So maybe we could all do that so that you get some context. Two, we have two girls, two boys. Ken, I noticed you took the microphone from Shelton when it came to ages. I was afraid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was super afraid he wasn't going to remember their ages. <laughs> no. no, we have three, two boys and a girl. Um, our boys, Lucas is 31, Lincoln is 20, just turned 27, and Scout is 25, and she's the only one that's married. Um, we have, Phil and I have five children. We have two girls and three boys they're now from 29 to 22 and one of my favorite pictures ever was the day that Susan turned 13 because we had from 13 to 19 um, so yeah we spent lots of years in teenage world as well uh, oh, so yeah so we have we have three of them married we have four grandchildren now fifth one on the way so it's interesting to look now at the next generation and all those kids the three that have children now have all three at different times said to me, I don't know how you did it. So, <laughs> It's got to feel good on that day. I'll re-ask the question. But now you start to see why I asked who I asked up here. This is arranging the fact that you even remembered how many you guys have down there on the end. Like, that's impressive in and of itself at this point. <laughs> that's why Jennifer has the mic. All right. So, yeah, what stuck out as difficult during this stage? Like those things that when you think back, they just jump out at you. Yeah, uh, um, I mean, there's so many things. Uh, I would say one is is dealing with attitudes uh, that changed sometimes minute to minute, um, and also not always knowing as they got into their 16, 17, 18, 19, not always knowing where they were um, was really hard for me. Yeah, I'll just feed right off that because basically the same thing. They, they learn how to manipulate you at that age and, and turn you against each other. Um, I heard Chris Storick say last week, if they find a loophole, they'll jump in it. And they take that to a whole new level as a teenager. So one of the things that um, I found out is whenever they say, the first thing that comes out of, out of their mouth is, you know how your mom is. I say, hold on, because the next thing you say, I'm going to go tell her. So, so you have to stay aligned or um, they, will, they will use you against each other really quick. And one thing I wrote down, because Kenneth said, don't say that because they never said that. But 
they will say very mean things to you when, you're, when they're teenagers. If, you're ever, if they're ever going to tell you they hate you or they can't stand you, it's going to happen when they're a teenager. And, it's, and they fight back. I mean, you know, before this phase, they kind of throw a fit and cry, but they'll fight you. And, and it's, it's a struggle. So They don't fight fair. <laughs> so those are the two I had. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of things. Attitude is definitely one of the things that we saw um, with our kids and the differences between all five of them. So I have forever said we have five polar opposites. I realize that that doesn't work, um, but we do. So the, what, what worked with one kid didn't work with another kid, which didn't work with another kid. Um, so then trying to figure out the needs of all of those kids as you're dealing with attitudes coming from one and um, all of that. And yeah, they will try to pit you against each other, and that's one thing that we didn't allow our kids to do. Um, you know, was to to do that. So our kids, Phil would never let them be disrespectful to me. Those kind of things. So we had those parameters in place. Um, we didn't always get it right, but we <laughs> at least had those things in place. Yeah. So I we compared notes last night. We did this independently and then compared notes, and I realized that we thought about these very differently. So when I read this, what sticks out to you is difficult. I wasn't thinking about what was difficult in dealing with my kids. I was thinking about what was difficult for me personally. And I think Bryce sort of hit the nail on the head a moment ago when he said, so, so a lot of you might not know, but when my kids were going through this stage, I traveled a lot for my job. So I was gone sometimes every week, two, three, four days. Um, flying. So um, what was really difficult for me was when I was home, I wanted all of my time with them because I missed them. And so learning that it wasn't personal for me that they wanted to go do this or that and not spend that time with me, um, I, had to, I had to constantly remind myself that 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 was their stage in life. It wasn't personal that they didn't like me or didn't want to spend time with me. So that was that's what stuck out for me. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because there is quite a shift in how much they need you and sometimes how much time they want to spend with you. That isn't because you changed. It's because they're changing. And so that that's a really good point. So what sticks out to you as particularly rewarding during that same stage? We're over it. <laughs> we made it. Um, I, I think my kids were very active in sports, and I'm kind of a sports junkie. So we had that in common, and I can remember a whole lot of, um, you know, Scout started out swimming in otters, and she'd swim against the same girls all the way through high school, and they built a good friendship and a competitive friendship, you know. And, and uh, we got to talk about who, you know, what soccer games they had coming up and and, you know, that's a good team. And, and I mean, and then we traveled uh, to, you know, events over the weekends. And I just, I felt like that we, we got really close in that respect. So that was kind of my favorite thing for that time of, the, time of their life. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and chime in. I coached them as well. I, was, I coached um, all three boys in peewee football then all three boys in middle school, then I had all three boys in high school baseball, and have this year I've finally gotten out of Little League baseball after 20-some years. But, uh, yeah, 
Oh, wow, yeah. But anyways, I had them, and, and you said something earlier, but I'm old school. In fact, I had one of the guys who ran the Little League said, the parents really like you, Phil, but they need you to calm down. I said, well, Jimmy, I said, you can tell them I'll do it, but I'm not, I'm not changing. I, I was old school football, and I still am and couldn't do it anymore. And my kids went through that, and I treated them. They didn't call me dad on the field. They called me coach. And when we got in the car, not that we didn't talk football going home, not much. I was dad and not coach. So I was hard. I'm not going to – I was uh, firing the other coach or something else. I forget. They, they nicknamed us. But uh, the kids that were there knew them, knew me. So they had that advantage, or I had that advantage, that – their friends knew me and were scared of me. I'll just be honest with you. Not really, but they had that, that, that fear that, call it, I don't know whether I'd call it respect because I can't say that for them, but as Shelton said, growing up with them and coaching them and, you know, people come up and telling you things, you know, good things about your kids, et cetera, was probably the highlights and just seeing them grow and, and uh, be successful. But being involved with them, and I'm not suggesting anyone getting Little League for 23 years, uh, but knowing their friends. I knew everybody they hung out with, and the best part of that is everybody they hung out with knew me, and Jennifer will probably tell you I probably parented at home a whole lot like I coached on the football field. Not really true. Short story, she, they started Little League. Phil, you got a coach. I said, okay. Two days later, she said, I don't know who you are on that field. And it's like, literally, literally she said that. And I, I liken it to, if you know how when they push the buggies through uh, the Walmart little, the plastic things hanging down, that was me walking onto a football field. Phil Regelman, Phil Regelman, coach. And I, I just, I changed. I, anyways, that was my favorite part. And even, and the girls are smart enough to play basketball and soccer, which I knew nothing about. So, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, the most rewarding thing, for, well, we did have our kids in sports too. So that was, there was a lot of fun times watching them um, but especially for us I, th I think for me just seeing them develop into um, young adults that we could you know grow into that friendship stage which I know is the next one but to coach them through that and to parent with Dan who was um, showed our kids a lot of grace he was really good at letting them fail um, so letting them learn to make decisions which honestly our, our years in teenage were not, you know, if you set that foundation, it becomes so much easier. So if you do have young kids, that's where it begins. But seeing them grow into, um, especially two of them, um, when they came and they, they made their faith their own, um, that was so big. You know, when Joel was junior in high school and his heart, his heart, you know, what he wanted for Christmas was C.S. Lewis books. I mean, that was big. <laughs> you know. um, and, um, you know, but just seeing them, their faith become their own. And rewarding and hearing, this is what we learned. You know, this is what we did at life. And having them so excited about youth conference or missions trip or something like that. Um, you know, Again, I looked at it a little differently. So um, that thing that was difficult was also the most rewarding. So the fact that before my job changed and I was traveling a lot, I was very, very, very controlling as a parent. Like, and honestly, my kids were okay with that. Like they, 
they followed my lead and and um when I was when I was gone, I didn't know what was happening at home, and I had to trust, you know, decisions that we had made without me overseeing it. And I had that tendency to be so over controlling. But what was most rewarding was to actually watch how they could thrive without me, and to to see that their independence was being built. And what I was fearful of that control came from fear, right? Was that maybe I hadn't taught them well enough. Or even if what I taught them mattered, if it was going to go astray anyway. But just watching them also rely on each other as siblings. Now, they'll tell you that they fought like cats and dogs, but I'm telling you that Lincoln wouldn't have made it to school four days out of five if Scout hadn't gone in and made sure he was awake. You know, I mean, they, they really bonded as siblings during that time as well, um, through fighting and through having a good time, both. But it was, it was good to watch that. How did you guys handle discipline during this stage? Because again, it's so different from when they're elementary school and it's such a hard line to navigate. Uh, I'm gonna tell you what we didn't do, okay? So we had, and it's something we worked out pretty early. Our kids loved going to youth group. They loved going to lock-ins. They loved doing things like that. And we very intentionally never punished them with that. So we never said, you're being a jerk, you're not going to youth group. Because that doesn't make sense. That's where we want them. We don't, so we never punish them with things like that. Um, we also, so early when our kids were growing up, we read some books by Kevin Lehman, and, and he has a discipline theory about you discipline based on reality. So if it's something you did, the discipline is gonna naturally follow what you did. So if we said you need to be home by midnight uh, and they were home at two, well, the discipline's going to follow exactly what you did wrong. Um, so I, I think we, we really, it's so different because there's so many different things. We disciplined Maya differently than we disciplined Isaiah. Isaiah got into some trouble and reality took hold in his little life. And we let that play out. Um, kind of the same. There, there's, I don't have a magic bullet for that. I, I think you take their phones away from them. You kind of, you kind of ground them from certain things. But one thing I think we did do, and you mentioned it, we let them. You know, they, their mistakes, they had to pay for their consequences. You know, we never went to school and tried to bail them out of trouble. You know, it was just like, well, I, I hate to be you. See ya. <laughs> you know, deal with it. <laughs> And uh, that's the way we did it. You know, I got, well, Dad, I got this speeding ticket for 100 bucks, And I was like, well, you know, good luck with that. See you. You know, just get it. You know, I, you just got to let them figure it out. And, and, and we never went to bat for them. And one quick story. Uh, I was working, and we, we had a summer program where we had a bunch of kids that we'd hire for the summer. And they were high school kids. And, and they got in a lot of trouble. They, they did something wrong, and, and they basically all got fired. And, and I had to go fire them. <laughs> and um, so, I, you know, you kind of knew those kids. There's probably six or seven of them. And some of them came from pretty good families. And uh, some of them just never came back. But, but their parents came in and complained that they were fired. And, and there was no doubt they did what they did. And then there were two or three of them that came in themselves and said, sorry, um, like an opportunity next summer, 
made a mistake, never saw their parents. So, you know, I always thought those were the kids that you kind of thought that would happen to. So um, we never hired the others back, but the <laughs> three we hired back. So I think um, you have to kind of let them fight their own battles at that, that point. Um, so we did a lot of that. Um, yeah, I just, I've talked too much on that. So Kenneth, um, we, uh, I'll let Phil take part of this too. I don't know, we've, we've chuckled over this for the last two days trying to figure out, you know, what did we do? Um, she told me a lot of things I did that I don't remember doing. I'll just be honest with you. He did. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. Like I said, every kid is different. So what worked for one didn't work for the rest of them. Um, when we did discipline, what we said is what we meant. So we didn't f come back from that. If this was the consequence, then that's what happened. So, you know, we stuck to that. The hard part, which you mentioned before we started, is at this age, consequences for their behavior can be lifelong. And that's where it's hard to let them, allow them the freedom to fall. We also didn't go bail them out. They knew they were in more trouble when they had to come tell us than whatever they had gotten in trouble for before. Um, and we see that just, I know Rhonda and I see that at least in higher ed, and we see those helicopter parents that have not let their kids fail, and those kids are in trouble as they approach adulthood. So you have to let your kids suffer consequences. They need to be the kids that come in and apologize and realize they've done things wrong, um, and then be able to come back from that because they have to be resilient, and they have to persevere through that, and if you don't allow them to, then they get in trouble. Um, we. Our kids were grounded. We removed phones. We removed technology. Phil removed a kid, one of our kids from a team. Um, if they once. had more than once, I told them if they behaved this particular way on a baseball field, their mother would be on the field removing them from the field. So, and I meant it, and they knew it. <laughs> so I will not tolerate the, you know, that kind of attitude or behavior, whether it's in my home, in someone else's home, on a field, in church, wherever it was. Um, and we just tried to stay consistent with that. I'm not sure we were always successful <laughs> in that, but like I say, they, they knew this is what it meant to be a child of ours, and this is what we expected um, from that. Yeah, and you said it this morning from that first, I forget the name of the first stage, but you know, three was, there was no two and a half, there was no two and three quarter, there was, I never got past two, you only took one time to three. You know, so I don't mean I didn't beat them, but whatever the consequence was, they got. So, it looked one. And generally, it was like, okay, especially with Katie. You know, she was the first one. She's misobedient. But uh, being consistent throughout from there to there and, and meaning what you say and saying what you mean as opposed to the lady in IGA when I worked there, she was going to skin her kid alive. Well, you're probably not going to do that, Mom, but... Realistic, realistic punishments to fit the realistic crime. Yeah, and we never punished with the church either. That was yeah. But we grilled one of our kids for a month, and I can't remember which one it was. But if I'm, it's probably Adam. Then I texted him to see why, but I don't remember. <laughs> That's really the longest punishment we ever dealt out. I felt like the the majority of our discipline happened by being proactive before. Um, you know, my kids will quote to you the number of times that I said to them, your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until your late 20s, meaning it is my job to keep you safe because the prefrontal cortex of your brain is what 
where you make good decisions. It's where you um, are not spontaneous. And because of that, <laughs> um, we're going to do things that are going to keep you safe. And it was not after the fact that we told them what was wrong. So for example, we, to be honest, until this day, <laughs> we have all of our kids' social media passwords. We had them, that was a requirement. Not just that we were followers of them, but that we had their passwords. We could change their posts, and that would not be pretty if we did that. Um, we had safe words that they could have so that when they were in a situation they were uncomfortable with, didn't know how to get out of whatever, um, they, could, they could really tell their friends how bad I was and say that magic word when they called me yelling at me, but not really. And, I, and, it, and they took advantage of it. Um, and I went when, they, when that happened. So I think a lot of our, I asked Lincoln this question by the way, because if I haven't said so yet, there's two or three, we have three kids. I always said we had two college funds and one bail fund, and you can figure out which one was that. But I asked him the other day about this, and he, I said, what was the worst part growing up with us? And he said that you weren't naive. And being proactive, um, one thing that we had talked about is just how we just, um, and this was something a pastor that we had at the time, so helping him, um, was, you know, where are you going to be, who are you going to be with, what time will you be in? So just kind of remind, making sure we knew where they were going to be, and beforehand we knew exactly what was going on. And they couldn't just say hang out, like they had to have, that was a big part of it, was there had to be a purpose for why we're hanging out, there had to be a reason. So that was um, just something that was kind of proactive, and just here's the expectation that you're, we're going to know where you are and all that. So, uh, I, I also had a bit of humor in things that I did, like there was a time when they had a bunch of friends over and I was trying to sleep and they were really loud and I told them, could you please be quiet? They were still really loud, they were watching something on TV, so I'm like, okay, fine. So I found a Lawrence Welk YouTube video and I streamcast it to the TV and all of a sudden I heard, what is this? <laughs> Message received. I like that, yeah. So I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm going to go a little off book here, um, just because it's kind of a follow-up to what you guys had said. It, I heard when you were choosing what to discipline or how to discipline, I heard a couple of you say, because we had seen this in some other kids and we knew we didn't want that, or um, in higher ed, we saw kind of the fruits of this kind of parenting. So can you share just a little bit about how you parented with the end in mind? There was this, here's who we want them to be, or sometimes here's what we don't want them to be, and how that kind of shapes and affects the way you handle them as teenagers. Does that question make sense? Um, <laughs> I was uh, had a comment at the end of, of what we did right, but I'll share it now. Um, one thing we did with our kids, and I, what I wrote down in my notes was, you need to get a job. Um, and our kids all worked. They all had jobs. Um, they were very active, so a lot of times it was just summer jobs. But, um, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, and maybe that's the example I had, um, you know, when I started working, my dad said, what's your money? You do what, what you want to with your money. And, and that was some freedom there. 
And uh, so we gave our kids freedom. We said, yeah, you know, you, it's your money. You can spend on it what you want. And I would almost encourage a financial failure at that age <laughs> um, because I remember one of them was like, I'm going to save up my money and buy this $200 pair of shoes. And I was like, yeah, that's great. You're going to do that. You're going to do that. And that, that child right now would never spend $200 pair of shoes. So, you know, it's better for them to make a financial mistake at uh, 16 than at 32. So... Um, I always, that was a, something that I learned from being a kid, and, and then I thought that was a good decision to make when we were growing They all worked, and, and actually all of them have their real jobs now, but they also do side work. You know, Lucas is an IT guy, and he'll, he'll travel and, and help with some gaming competitions and make some extra money, and Lincoln does some uh, training for Kenna's company in the summer, and, and Scout's always joining those things where you used to sell, you know, jewelry and you get free jewelry and she's got all kinds of apps where she gets free things. And I mean, it's, it's a little ridiculous, but, um, but they all worked. I, I, they aren't our hard workers, <laughs> but they are workers. So I think starting them early on that and a funny story. Um, one thing we all have in common in our family is everybody in our family worked at the Elkins YMCA at one time in our lives. And, and that's where Ken and I met. So you know, it's a good thing. And then Jennifer was there, too. We all went through lifeguarding courses together. And so it, I think getting your kids to work, and it doesn't have to be a lot, you know, just to, so they have some responsibility with finances is huge. We made uh, family non-negotiable. Um, in other words, uh, family was critically important. You will not disrupt our family. And practically, that means... We sat down to eat dinner together. We hung out together. We did things together. Um, we, we never really said it, but we, um, they knew that their bedrooms were for two things, studying and sleeping. Uh, they didn't have a TV in their bedroom. They didn't have a gaming thing in their bedroom. Bedrooms for two things, because if you're gonna do that, hang out with our family. We went on vacations, it was our family. So we, I think we, we built up a tremendous amount of trust and it led into what is today a ton of free, a, a lot of friendship that we want to hang out together because family was non-negotiable. Uh, you did not disrupt that. We, um, I guess I'll let Phil take part of that, but our kids also worked. I've said for a long time that God knew what he was doing when he gave us five <clears throat> because it was easy to say no to things if we couldn't afford it five times. So it got easy to say Nope, we can't do it because we can't multiply it by five and do it. Um, so I think that saved us in a lot of respects, probably because we didn't have the opportunity to do that. Our kids also worked. Um, they still work. I, I said to Adam last weekend, he was home and he was helping me work, um, doing some stuff at the house. And I said, it'd be nice if some weekend everybody could come home and not have to work. And he said, I wouldn't know what to do. Like, <laughs> what would we do if we weren't working? Uh, because they have always done that if it's, you know, something to help fill over at the farm or um, whatever. So they also have done that, which has provided them with the finance to figure out what they're going to do with that and to take on that responsibility. So that has also been, um, I think, a big thing with our kids and just instilling that and looking at the in the long term and then not jumping in their battles for them, which is the helicopter parent part that we see in, in higher ed. Um, you know, where parents are still trying to control their kids' lives and they're making the phone calls to the school and they're doing all that, which is not their responsibility. That child needs to step up and do that. 
and and unrealistic at times too. We literally had one parent that called and said they would like for little Johnny to just take classes on Mondays and Wednesdays. Well, wouldn't we all? You know, it doesn't work that way. So that's not the way of life. But um, letting them figure that out. I remember even with my own kids, Katie was going to school and they were going to do her advising and I was not invited. I was like, well, what do you mean? This is what I do. I do advising here. I'm not invited. I was not invited. And guess what? She did it all by herself and she did it better than if I had been there. Um, so letting them take those steps, letting them fall if they fall, um, <laughs> and trying to keep the guardrails on so that you don't end up with lifelong consequences. And we've had that happen too. So, you know doesn't end at 18 that's for sure no <laughs> I think um you know definitely that we're not helicopter you know we let the kids you know Dan always said let them fail you know give let let them fail safely so that is important but another thing and um that we really tried to do and continue to strive to do is guard the relationship at all costs so guard the relationship at all costs so it doesn't matter. You can't speak life into a kid who doesn't want to hear, hear from you, right? You can't. So guard the relationship at all costs. So that um, if, if, you know, if, if lecturing them is going to, you know, shut your, the, their ear to you, it may not be the way to handle that situation. Guard the relationship at all costs. Um, you know, that is what's most important. If it means that you have to watch them do something that's going to hurt them, but you have that relationship, you'll be there to help them when they come to you. So I think, I think just guarding that relationship so that they will come to you. So. I think everybody said everything. Only addition for me would be we, we always felt that there's no growth when you stay in your comfort zone. So advocating that our, that our kids even called the pizza order in, um, became their own advocates, did things for themselves so they learned how to do that, but also if they were comfortable. So we, our three kids were totally different. One of them tried to be in everything that, you know, was out there. Um, every club, every activity, every sport. We had another one that we had to nudge and really force to get out of their comfort zone, and that was important to us too because that was part of being able to handle. If you're not out of your comfort zone, how do you learn how to handle successes and failures as you grow, right? So, you know, we had one that was, was happy to be home and happy to be with us and not exploring, and I thought he might live with us forever, so. <laughs> which as we parented with the future in mind is not where we were aiming. Like, so, so let me ask, uh, Jennifer, you mentioned a little bit about this. How did, how did you guys what to, or decide, excuse me, decide what to say yes to and no to? Like, what was your process? Whether it was, if we can't afford for all five, then it's a no for everybody, or like, how did you decide? Because there's way more opportunities than there is time. The easy things were contrary to Word of God, those are simple. You know, not simple, but there's right and wrong. You know, but what you—I forget what you called there a little bit ago. But I'm guilty of that one. Where it was your preference or whatever. I oh, mean, I'm always on my boys get a hair. You know, you know. And now they have two two uh, photographs online from their football in Marietta and Glenville that I'm sure they're going to be really proud of one of these days. I'm 
Caleb's picture was her dad is the was worst picture I've ever seen. Lord, either one of them. And is, I love Caleb. Both, but it's like, you get one chance to make a first impression. But the, I, I, I was guilty on the other side. And I'll go ahead and tell on myself so she doesn't have to tell on me. You don't, DNA, you don't hear this story, okay? But when Ronnie Palmer was a baseball coach, I got a set up with him that Isaac and Caleb could go up and pitch. With, their, with them at their practices, which was not kosher. Caleb was, yeah. Well, Isaac went on to pitch in, co in college, and Caleb played football in college. Isaac wanted to go coon hunting. And it's like, anyways, this was a preference, and I screwed up. I don't think, well, we didn't, we didn't speak to each other for probably a month and a half, two months, something like that. And you got to understand that Isaac and I went hunting. So I took him out of kindergarten to go rabbit hunting with me. And he, anyway, we got called to the office because he had a shotgun shell in his pocket, you know, back in the day of terrorists, you know. Uh, but anyways, it was two months, and that was a, it was a preference. Like, oh, man, you want to pitch in college? You're, you know. And it was, a, it was a battle that lasted two and a half months. And I don't know if he caught any coons or not, but I took Caleb to baseball practice, and he went coon hunting. I don't think he went every night just to prove a point. But uh, I don't know how you, you pick and choose. I do want to say this, and I'll be done with this question. Is somewhere early on, before we had kids, one of these stations, that parents are so concerned about giving their kids everything they didn't have that they failed to give them what they did have. And that struck me. And, you know, you go back and picking out the good things out of your childhood that you think influenced you in the proper way is to make sure, and that was pre-kids, pre actually, to make sure that they got that foundation that right and wrong uh, parameters and all. I wish I had been here for two weeks ago to heard all that. But anyways, I'm, I'm sure it was. <laughs> I'm sure it was. We had one of those, what they call, what do we have? Bridal showers, excuse me. I think for us, it wasn't really yes or no. I think it was more talking to them. We said a lot, what do you think's best? And... And even to this day, I have really tried to uh, reinforce in them, you know what? You made a good decision. We as parents are really quick at saying, that was a bad decision. You screwed up. That's wrong. And I've really tried to reverse that. And as we've talked through things, even just last week, I said to Isaiah, I said, Isaiah, I'm really proud of you. You are making good decisions. And in his mind, he's saying, wow, I'm on the right track. So... So kind of two things. I, I, I wasn't sure if this, and I think we're on the second to last question, what was your process to making decisions during those busy years, right? That's what we're doing. Okay. So um, sometimes our kids would want to do something, and and we'd be like, I don't know. And, and then Ken and I would make decisions ourselves for the family. But I remember making a whole lot of pros and cons lists, just writing them down. What are the pros? What are the cons? And, you know, maybe it's because I do that at work, and we call that um, – uh, make a good business case. <laughs> when I want to do something at work, my boss will say, well, make a good business. How, you know, how are we going to be safer? How are we going to make more money? How, you, know, what, you know, what's the end result? And we, we implemented a lot of that. I mean, I, we made a lot of lists of pros and cons to come down to it. And then our kids had to do that if they wanted to do something. You know, well, what's the pros and the cons to doing that? And, and uh, you know, those cons, are you willing to accept that responsibility? So. 
Yeah, and that was part of our um, prefrontal cortex development <laughs> plan was, you know, the spontaneity. I think I want to do this. I think I want to be a part of this. And they join something and they don't really even know what it is and find out two weeks later they want to quit, that kind of thing. So creating a pros and cons list and forcing them to have rationale um, and, and not only rationale but ownership of those decisions of what we say yes to and what we say no to, and sometimes it was a flat out, they, they still were with the pro and we said no, but developmentally appropriately explained to them back to that safety feature why it was a no. <laughs> if they joined something, two weeks later came and said, oh, I didn't even know what it was, this was a bad decision, were they allowed to quit? Did they stick with it? Did it depend so, on what it was? So that's a great question. I think that's why the proactive part for us worked. That was one of, we did a lot of things wrong. Trust me. But one of the things I feel like we did right was by having that conversation before the decision was made and involving them in that decision and there's pros and cons, that's when we set the parameters. If this happens, this is what has, you know, and what we said, you know, if you're starting this, you're finishing it, that kind of thing. Um, but having that conversation ahead of time and not just, you know, reacting to that. Is, I think I think worked well. We were never big on letting our kids quit. We, they just had get through it. Don't do it next year. I would say one of the things that we talked about when we made decisions, like with the kids, as far as like um, travel or ball, some things like that or whatever, it was always how many Sundays will that be? Um, how many you you know are you going to miss youth group? Um, things like that, because that was always part of the priority was that, you know, Sunday, um, Wednesday night youth group, which wasn't an issue for them. They wanted to go there when we were making summer, summer plans. You know, do you have, you, you know, you have life, that, not well, life or creation, um, which was usually the summer youth group events. Um, and then the summer week that they would spend at summer camp or would they volunteer at camp for the summer during their later, you know, um, which several of them volunteered sophomore, junior year, summers, um, at least for a few weeks. So um, looking at um, that being priority um, was always kind of a big part. One thing I've, I've said to the kids, I'd say particularly high school, probably more than middle school, and then continuing um, even in the last three weeks, have had the same conversation with them and said they just need to spend a lot of time on their knees if they're making decisions because God will speak to them. He's not going to tell me what they should do. He will speak to them if they're willing to listen. So encouraging them to, yes, we've done the same thing with pros and cons list and all that, but with, you know, big decisions especially, every little decision, everything we should do that, but you need to, they've got to be talking directly to the Lord for guidance from him. Really super fast story. One summer, Isaiah saw a sign, called it, came home and decided to sell vacuum cleaners. And we talked about it. And I said, son, I don't, I don't really think this is going, dad, I know it's going to work out. My response was, okay. Uh, in three weeks, it did not work out. <laughs> so, yeah. But that's, we, we let him, I mean, it's not going to kill him. Let them fail. Go. Go try to sell vacuum cleaners to all the people you want. Good luck, son. Did you buy a vacuum cleaner? No, we did not. Good man. Good man. All right. So th I'm just going to throw this open to you guys. Anything that you wrote down that you're going, man, I, I really feel like this is important. I need to say this. Or I wish someone would have told me this piece. 
any kind of parting words of wisdom? So, uh, Ron and I are both in higher ed. I've been in higher ed since 2001. That period of time of deciding when they're sophomores, juniors, seniors, it's getting really, what in the world am I going to do with my life? is when you want them coming back to you. Um, I'll say this, and, and my, my employer would probably not like this, but college is not for everybody. Sometimes going to work a year is a phenomenal thing. Sometimes going to join the military is a phenomenal thing. Sometimes going to college is a phenomenal thing. Um, I would offer up for us that as you get closer to that, what am I gonna do about college, FAFSA, living there, going away. Uh, we've been through every gamut of this. We are more than happy to spend some time talking to you about it. Right now I have one at Cal, I have one in Georgia, Joel's back in college in Charlotte, and Isaiah's finishing up at Ohio State grad school. So we've been through, and I see it, um, like you said, I see it all the time in college where parents sent their kids and it's like, no, you really shouldn't have done that. And I have other kids and I'm like, you know, you really could have done that. Uh, we are more than happy to help guide you through that process because it is not an easy process and it's very, very hard. So, I, you want to go ahead? No, go ahead. I just, I had two things when I was really contemplating this, like, okay, what would be something I wish someone would have told me I'm going to, yeah. So, two things. One, communication. So communicating with your kids is so different at this stage than any other time. And all three of my kids communicated differently with me. I had one that would tell me anything too much. I didn't want to know everything that I was told. And, and so that one, not so difficult. But I had one that like communicated with me, but you didn't know if it was truthful or not. And then you had one that wanted to communicate but didn't know how to and was embarrassed and afraid. So we found, <clears throat> like, for the one, um, I'm trying not to throw anybody under the bus, <laughs> I promised the kids I would do that. Um, one was very attached to social life, et cetera, and so finding time to be able to communicate without a distraction was difficult. So we had to find a method for communicating. It wasn't that he wasn't going to talk to us. It was just how can we get him to focus on the communication with us. So it was things like on the ski lift. We knew that was something he loved was, you know, snowboarding. So on the ski lift, riding up, you've got a captive audience right there. Or in the hot tub, you can't take your phone to the hot tub, you know. And so we found ways to communicate. But I will tell you that if my house was, the, this other thing, so my daughter, the communication with her, if my house was on fire, everybody knows in the house that the one thing they grab is, the, is our journal. So when she was 11 years old, we started a back and forth journal because she doesn't openly talk, but she would write questions down. And then I would just find the, the journal on my bed. And I knew she wanted to talk and I could read it and I could respond in writing. And sometimes she would even write in there, please ask me about so that I would start the conversation with her about whatever it was. And that went all the way through high school up until she got married. And I treasure that. I treasure that. Um, so the communication is one. And um, the other is finding another adult that you trust and that they have a relationship with. 
that they can use as a critical friend. Um, that might, for, for our kids, we had, they each had a couple. Um, one was from the church. Um, it was either a young life leader, um, or it was Bryce, or it was Kim, their youth leader at the time. I know they used it. But I went to those people ahead of time and said, look, I'm telling my kids, they picked you. They picked you as the person they'll come to if they can't come to us. You don't have to tell me when they come to you. But, but I trust you. You're my critical friend. And they, they took advantage of that. And the outside the church person was either a coach um, or honestly an older so, for example, Scouts was Katie, because Katie, how much older is Katie? Mm, probably three, years, four three or four years older, and, and it was Katie. So, those were things. So, um, I knew my wife and my daughter had a journal. I knew that I was not allowed to read it. And I later knew I didn't want to read it. So if your wife and your daughter have a journal, <laughs> you do not want to read that, okay? So that's some free advice right there. Um, I think, you know, the last couple of weeks we've heard some parents say, look, I didn't want my kids just so active, and we kind of limited it. We, we never really did that with our kids, especially when they were teenagers. Now, I'll tell you, they gravitated to certain things. You know, they, they narrowed it down to a couple sports and, and a couple activities. Um, but we built very strong relationships with the parents of those kids. And um, sometimes we knew things before our kids knew it, stuff that was going on. So I think that is important to have that relationship with, with your kids and parents. Um, I talk a lot about it takes a village. It really does at this age, especially when you have active kids. But you can kind of control who's in the village, <laughs> if you will. So... Um, you know, I think that's important that you have people you can trust. But um, Kenna and I grew up in different homes. But one thing that was consistent with both of us, all four of our parents were giving people. They, they believed in going out and helping people and really ultimately loving on people. And we, with Kenna being in schools, there's a lot of teenagers that don't have that at home. So we wanted our home to be that place. And, and we encouraged our kids. We're like, it, this is a discipleship this is a big thing we need you we don't need you home we need you out there building relationships and helping people that need help and I think that was that was really important for us and and you know I have this saying that like I think like 95% of all the problems in the world could be solved with better communication so I think good communication with your spouse and then and then with everyone else and then um, just the final thing getting back to the active stuff you know, our, our kids were big in Young Life. It's, this is a shameless plug for Young Life. It was huge for, for, for Scout and Lincoln. It wasn't here for Lucas. But, um, you know, I knew every Monday night they were at Young Life. I knew right after school they were at practice. I knew Saturday they had a soccer game. If you, if you don't know where your kids are, they're kind of making up their own things. And, and, and you don't want that. So keep them busy. Keep them in things where, where you know where they are and you know they're safe. And that lim just... The math, that eliminates more time that they have to kind of find their own fun. And you don't want them doing that at teenagers, especially when they, when they can travel and they can get away from the house. Um, I'm not going to talk anymore, so I'm going to make sure I said everything I wanted to say. Uh, <laughs>
Yeah, I think that is. She said, oh, no, one more thing. Uh, and, oh. for, <laughs> and for all ages, one thing we did was um, we went on vacations, and we still talk about family vacations. There were years we went, to, we went to the same, we stayed at the same place at the same beach, went to the same restaurants. And um, we were very big on not taking our kids out of school to go on a vacation. We never did that. We said, they got to be in school. And looking back, we, we probably could have bent that rule a little bit. A and, yeah, and, and really <laughs> done more that. with our kids. Because we, you know, a lot of times we couldn't afford an expensive vacation. But just going um, down to my, my dad's farm down in Webster County and spending a weekend fishing and stuff, it was just those memories last forever. So I would encourage more of that if you can do it. I'm done. <laughs> I would say, um, obviously, I think we'd all agree prayer is big at this time as it is in every stage. So just praying for the kids when you don't know, you know, you're wondering where, you know, is, are they making good decisions? Um, but a big part of us, and Kenny, you mentioned this with uh, adult children, uh, having other adults speaking into their lives. And Bryce, when he said about voices, this is one of the things that Dan and I wanted to just really um, share is... Um, that those voices can be helped if you have a lot, they have a lot of people in, in that they know who are Christians, who are speaking that, that into their lives. So by being in youth group, by going on missions trips with other adults from the church, because our uh, mission trips that our kids went on from the time they were in sixth grade were intergenerational, so they got to know people. When Danielle went back, her roommate commented, like, she introduced me to all her friends, they were all adults, like, she didn't get this. And it's like, yeah, she still is in a Bible study with someone from that church, um, a young adult couple. And um, so having, you know, being involved and having them be mentored by others in the church was, is a, was huge for us because they were having many, many different voices, right? And now, in speaking to that, we also were very proactive in just very, we wanted to mention um, in the in talking about them with sex because we're starting at 12 right so um we were we were the first ones to speak that after that we're like 
hopefully it, it, we knew it was being reinforced through church and Sunday school and youth group and things. But the sex talk was a weekend thing that we did. Um, we used Passport to Purity by the Rainies. So that's just a little plug for that. Um, my daughters could date when they were 38. So I took care of that. But in reality, 16 was the age. I mean, Susan came home. You know, she told this little boy, no, I can't. My dad won't let me. She'd go to the middle school, whatever it was. And good for her when he asked her later. She told him no again when she was 16. But this um, so oh. made me smile all over. Uh -huh. <clears throat> the next stage is friendship and your thing. And th that's probably one of the hardest things you're going to deal with as is not being their friend. That's not your job until they're 18 or out of the home. And, you know, I've, I've told each of them, I'm not, I'm not here to be your friend. You know, you was talking about the hour. Isaac came home late one night and I told him the next morning, I said, son, this is not a bed and breakfast. I said, your stuff's in there. You can pack it up and move out if he was 20. I said, you can pack up and move out or whatever you want to do. This is not the rules of the rules. And that was the end of that. I mean, but I'm, I'm, I'm ugly and mean, but they're not your friends. I'll just say that. And you're their parent, they're your kid, and then later on you can be their friend. I actually said to Isaiah on the way home from college one day, I said, son, I just want to let you know something. I've always loved you. But for the past two years, I really haven't liked you. You've been a jerk. <laughs> but I kind of like you now. And I was, it was true because he was a jerk. Um, and I was just being honest with him. He's like, wow, thanks for telling me that, I think. I've told all my kids, my boys especially, not so much the girls, but when you get 25, I'm going to be pretty smart individual. I'm pretty dumb right now, but when I get 20, you turn 25. And Adam and I were talking maybe yesterday, and I told him that several times. That I just said, son, I love you. I said, I don't freaking like you at all right now, period. I don't like you. I don't like the way you are. I love you. He said, Dad, you know you said that. He said, I just thought you were kidding. He said, but you were serious. I said, you're doggone right now. I was serious. Yeah, I've, I've heard it said that uh, if you want to be friends with them later, you have to be willing to let them hate you now. You know, and it's that kind of, not that we aim for our children to hate us, but it, I'm not here to be your friend right now. I'm here to keep you safe because your brain hasn't fully formed yet, and you're not even smart enough to know that. You know, and later, once, those, once, once that brain comes together, we can be great pals. Like, but... Yeah, the, I was just going to, these two have already said that, but Karen Warren, Ward Warren's daughter, had said to me at one point, um, your house is a revolving door, like there's always people in and out. I hope so, you know, so that's what we always wanted with our home that was always open to our kids, to their friends, to whoever, and we've had multitude of people that have stayed and, and yeah more of the boys came but that was like say I hope that that's what our kids remember was that our house was a revolving door and that door was always open all right well I have to for time close it down now but um I, I've talked with all of these guys and told them that I would be pointing people toward them because there's a chance that they said something and didn't a spouse took the microphone away before they could really get into the story or whatever. So if you heard some things that you're going like, hey, I really want to know more about that, or 
um, man, I did the exact opposite. And, and just being able to, um, to find somebody to go, hey, can you, can you tell me a little more? They're all willing to have those conversations with you. Um, so if you heard something, please uh, talk with them and follow up. Or, or maybe just someone else that's in here that you look up to and you go, hey, they, they asked a question or they read something like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. This is always meant to be the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one. Um, so I hope that it doesn't end here. Um, but they are all willing to finish up or to follow up with you on that. So let me pray uh, and dismiss us because I do love those nursery workers. Lord Jesus, I am thankful um, just for wisdom that I heard today. And, and Lord, even in spots where they probably would have handled things in different ways, even just seeing uh, your grace to us, that you didn't just give that, here's how to raise every single teenager. Uh, you've given this ability to know our children, to know what they need in the moment and to um, to do what's best for each individual child. Um, so would you just continue, Lord, to lead us in that? We want the best for our kids. Um, we want them to be healthy adults who are in love with you and know how to love others well. Um, would you teach us to train them in that now? Uh, Lord, especially in this coaching stage, uh, would you teach us to use what influence we have uh, for their greater good down the road? Um, so just help us to know when to speak, when not to, when to, um, when to trust them and when to pull the reins in a little bit, whatever this needs to look like, we are completely dependent on your guidance, Father. Uh, so would you just come and lead each of our families, I pray, uh, for the next generation's good. In Jesus' name, amen.